Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, my faithful and good st- uh, co-host, Dale Stenberg, and I are happy to be joined by Dr. Joshua Rasmussen uh, to talk about his recent book, "Can Reason: How Reason Can Lead to God. Uh, uh, we both uh, uh, read this book and enjoyed it very much, and maybe uh, uh, Dr. Rasmussen, or I'll, I'll call you Josh now, uh, sure. uh, maybe maybe one way of beginning our conversation is to uh, talk about the book actually as a piece of rhetoric. Uh, mm-hmm. Within the last year, one, one, one sort of uh, 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 what's analog to your book might be something like Lewis's Miracles, where he develops his famous sort of argument from reason. And mm-hmm. I, I read that in the last year or two, and I, I was fascinated by it actually partially for its argument, but also uh, uh, by its rhetoric. I was fascinated mm-hmm. by the rhetorical approach he took. And as I was reading your book, I was sort of reminded of this, that I'm on the one hand fascinated mm. by this very fine-grained argument you're making, yeah. but I'm also fascinated by the book's rhetorical uh, uh, nature, the, the the way you're appealing to the reader. Yeah. Uh, two of the things that kind of um, bookend that for me were, uh, you, you begin with this fascinating statement that... Uh, key to minimizing error is intellectual humility. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a fascinating mm-hmm. thing to emphasize on the on the front side, but on the back side, and I saw this sprinkled throughout the book actually, but you end on a note of saying, this book is written for anybody with a kingly nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was a fascinating appeal. In fact, or queenly, or queenly. Or queenly, you know, exactly. Yeah, gender a regal, yeah, I, I a regal nature. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I make, in my own writing, I've, I've found for whatever reason in our own, sociological yeah. time for whatever reason that same motif has struck me as a very important one to appeal to and i wonder if you could i don't know speak for a minute about on the one hand this pole of humility yeah. and yet on the other hand this pole of uh, there's there's something of the of the regal in the philosophical quest and you know yeah. why, why those are important emphases to you i appreciate that you were seeing that i mean that that was something that i really worked on because i wanted this book to serve people ultimately mm. i wanted to serve people And in the book, I actually talk about a dream that I had where I was having a philosophical conversation with somebody and it was on the problem of evil. And that in my dream, the person turns their head and I saw that it was like shaved off in the back. And I was like horrified. And the person in the dream was telling me that he was in a war. And I still remember the feeling of the dream. It was like all of a sudden I realized that we were having a philosophical conversation and he put out a stump of an arm and said, I want to feel your compassion. And then I woke up, you know, like, mm. well, right before I woke up, I had the desperate desire for him to feel my compassion. But prior to that, I wanted him to like, know that I was right. You know? So, cause I was making my argument and I thought he mm. was wrong. And I mean, it's philosophy is a complicated thing because you want people to see what you think is true, but everybody sees different things. And one thing I want to be very careful about is I don't want to just like advertise a package of beliefs to sort of sell it so that I can get them to agree with me. What I really want to do is have ideas that can serve people and they can turn it over in their own minds and see, okay, does this serve me? And that was kind of like the whole theme of the book was to make a case that reality is fundamentally awesome, more awesome than you realize. Mm. And that the reasons to think that actually point to your awesomeness. So Mm. I want to treat the reader as a treasure, because otherwise it like defeats the whole point of the book. Mm -hmm. And I want to add something else too, because I was also thinking about how to present it, how to organize the ideas because they're very complex ideas. And I wanted to create 
a way that readers could relate to the ideas. And I was actually praying about it. And I, I felt like God gave me this. Um, I don't know. It was just that feeling in prayer. Like, like God was like telling me to use pictures, um, use images. And so that kind of motivated me to think about having the picture of a bridge. So you're taking step by step mm. across the way. And anytime I would um, go through my, my reviewing the draft and try to improve the language, I would always think, okay, how can I convert this without loss of content to mm. like an image that readers can kind of pick up on? So oh, that's something are, that I really had to work on. Beautifully, your very briefly, your mention of cartoons yeah. uh, in, in the mind body problem, I thought was just, uh, just an incredible image. Uh <laughs> well, thank yeah. you. I mean, and it was not easy at all. So I think I created a high bar for myself because now I've been working on this new book on consciousness, the nature of persons. And I actually picked up how reason can lead to God. I started reading that. I was like, okay, th this is my bar. I want it to be, you know, this, this sort of easy to read. Um, and I actually found it very difficult to even get started writing my draft on this new book because I had to remind myself, you know, just go layer by layer, um, do, do a messy draft and then try to improve mm -hmm. it, try to make it cleaner and cleaner. And so it, it's not easy for me. I really admire people who have sort of that natural ability to communicate complex ideas in picturesque ways, because I feel like for me, and I'm not just saying this, like, I feel like I really have to work at that, but it feels like it's worth spending the time doing that yeah. so that the reader can enjoy the, the journey. Yeah. You mentioned there um, how you wanted to present something easy to read. I appreciate that especially when you're talking about such complex issues. Yeah. Um, for example, I was about halfway through the book, I think. Uh, I have a 14-year-old son, and I grabbed him, and I said, when, I'm done, when Daddy's done with this book, you're going to read this. Uh, because I think that you can basically follow what he's saying, even if there's a lot of things to fill in, because you're going to have to... 14. Oh, 14. Oh, oh yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, start young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My genes are. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I heard it. I heard <laughs> um, a 12 year old read it, review the book, and seem like they grasp it. Um, yes. And if somebody can distill down such complex, fundamental concepts into, a, into language, rhetoric that a teenager could pick up and sort of get the gist of, that's that's a science and an art you have to have the artistic mind working with the scientific mind in order to produce something like that and i assume it'll just get easier as you do it more so you're yeah. young still and just keep it up uh but to get into like the contents of the book so it's uh how reason can lead to god and then the subtitle is a philosopher's bridge to faith you already mentioned the bridge so maybe it would be helpful to give us the planks that you lay that form the bridge. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're always appealing to the foundation that holds the bridge up. Yeah. And that's really what the book is about. Understanding the foundation and the steps along the way to the bridge to lead you over here to the treasure. Uh, so if you can give us a 10,000 foot view yeah. of your moves and the planks that you're that you want to Tell us about the tools that you're using yeah, uh, and then maybe the steps along the way of the bridge and how they relate to the foundation all the way to yeah. the treasure. Okay. I'll describe a few things and you guys can draw me out a bit. Um, okay. I wanted just to add here that when I wrote the book, 
I kind of had like two different people in mind. Um, one was just the professional philosopher. And then the other was somebody completely new to it. And so when I was doing my revisions, I would do the revisions with somebody completely new in mind. And then I would do another set of revisions with the professional philosopher in mind. And, you know, then I would kind of read it sort of with both see, okay, could both kind of figure it out. And the reason why I did that was because I wanted it to go deep. Like I didn't want it just to be, um, I don't know, just a, a shallow summary of some of the themes and philosophy of religion. I really wanted to articulate some of the things at the edge, at the edges of my own thinking, really. Um, and so in that foundation of reason chapter, for example, I share some updates to my own thinking about the nature of propositions and thoughts and reason itself. Um, so, so I do take it to the edge of my own thinking. And, and for that reason, um, even, even the pieces in there, I have these sort of advanced boxes where you can go deeper yep. and some of those things I'm continuing to turn over in my own mind. But the basic structure of the bridge is basically I start with the first step onto the bridge, which is to realize that something is real, something like you are real, something exists. And I want to start there because I want to start with something that I think can be very clear. My goal mm -hmm. is to invite readers to see things for themselves. Mm -hmm. So at no point am I going to just like appeal to an authority um, unless you can also check it for yourself. So like I could cite the scholars, you know, according to the philosophical consensus, there is something right? like according yeah. to mainstream science, things are real, right? Like there's mm -hmm. biological systems, therefore something's real, right? But, um, but I believe that you have the most power if you can check things for yourself. So that's the first step onto the bridge. And then the bird's eye sort of description of the bridge is that I go from the observation that something exists to an ultimate explanation of how anything can exist. Mm. So I argue for what I call the foundation theory. So if, if this represents reality, uh, reality includes some kind of foundation to explain how there can be anything rather than just nothing. Mm. So I make a case for that in kind of the first set of steps, um, I lead to this foundation. And then in the second set of steps, I probe the foundation and I investigate what kind of foundation could be a foundation for everything that we see. And so I make observations about what we see while well, we see material structures. We see within our own experiences, consciousness, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Uh, we see our sense of right and wrong. It's not just that we have senses. We have very specific kinds of senses, a sense of yeah. good, a sense that things haven't gone right. Um, we see that there are principles of reason. For example, it seems like if something is completely red, it can't also at the same time be completely not red at all. Well, how do you know that, right? Uh, well, because there's this basic principle of reason. It can't be both A and not A. There can't be square circles anywhere in the universe. So that's another observation. And so what I do is I, I look at, okay, well, what kind of nature could ultimate fu fundamental reality have in order for reality to include geometric forms that lead to complex creatures, um, consciousness, a sense of right and wrong, principles of reason, um, a sense of value, the value of being a person, all these things. And I make the case that this ultimate reality wouldn't just be fundamental and uncaused and ultimate, but it would also have a certain kind of supreme nature, 
which allows it to give rise to all the different effects. Right. And so that's the basic structure of the bridge. And then we get to um, this sort of obstacle to the end, which is mm. the problem of evil. And so yeah. we work through that. That's um, um, one of the things that's, uh, I think, another uh, appeal in the book that is fascinating is, in a way, almost one could one could say the book is an attempt to to get you to be re-enchanted with the very nature of reason. Uh, yeah. That it it seems like part of what you're trying to do. Yeah. I think there's a couple of sections where you're saying like it, it seems audacious to say that this small tool really can reach as yeah. far as it does, but it just does reach as far as it does, and that's that and that should actually fill you with wonder. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think in contemporary philosophy of religion, there's a a sort of you know, you sort of riff on the like, our oh, rationalism and the problem of the enlightenment and that led to the Nazis. And like, you know, you can't, you know, a reason like you're not sure where to put it anymore. And mm-hmm. I actually thought it was fascinating. There's a way in which you kind of combined the, the disenchantment discourse almost uh, with, yeah. with appeal to reason. And I thought that was a, for me, a very, very uh, effective, effective appeal. And, and to, to, to add to that, to, to effective appeals, you're just, I actually thought the most, um, some of the most fascinating content in the book was your attempt at the end mm-hmm. to work through obstacles. Uh, yeah. My own, uh, uh, I did a, a PhD in the humanities and my own dissertation was on the uh, uh, why, why modern atheism is plausible to people. I'm kind of riffing on Charles Taylor and, uh, mm-hmm. and particularly I confront the problem of divine absence, but more mm-hmm. as a phenomenological than a philosophical mm-hmm. uh, uh, apparatus. If you yeah. Will. Uh, but your particular discussion of divine absence, which which starts with sort of a philosophical discussion, uh, goes in a theological direction that I thought was just very beautiful. Uh, mm. As I th- and I, in fact, I, I found your account of theodicy. Um, um, uh, you know, th- there are, you know, you only spend four or five pages, but I thought it was about as compelling a four or five pages as I've read on theodicy. And so uh, I thought those moments were so maybe that's one way to to. To, to start is maybe to talk mm-hmm. about the theodicy and the divine absence actually elements uh, yeah. because those are such those are such a compelling things to people uh, yeah. and in the theodicy section i think one of the things you you try to camp out on is what makes a good story maybe you could say yeah. what, what you're developing with the notion how story relates to theodicy yeah, yeah. so you know what i see as being at stake here is a certain kind of obstacle now i position this at the end of the bridge but you could also think of this as sort of at the beginning of the bridge. Like, why would I take this bridge that's purporting to take me to this great treasure? That fundamental reality is so awesome that it actually would love me and have powers and all this stuff that's so great, this great treasure. Why would I even get started, right? If I already I'm making observations that would seem to discount that. Mm-hmm. And the basic worry is that, um, well, actually, just before I get into this, I love what you just said a moment ago about um, helping people sort of appreciate reason as a tool to find out reality, because that's also one of the barriers that would keep people onto a Mm. bridge like this is Mm. there's a kind of association with reason, sort of with that enlightenment, that rationalist project of trying to get certainty and figure out all this stuff just through reason without the tools of observation and scientific methodology. And so that's why actually in that section, I talk about how reason is actually part of science. They go hand in hand. And I also talk about the value of humility, because I think that that worry about being prideful and overly triumphal and arrogant or conclusive in your proofs also keeps people 
from embarking on this sort of curious journey. But on the problem of evil, the basic problem is that, right, like we observe things that are negative that seem to be departures from greatness. But if fundamental reality is supreme, it's purely positive, I call it, or perfect, then why in the world would anything ever depart from perfection, right? I mean, you might think if it is perfect, everything that it would produce would always be constantly perfect. It would have the desire to do that, the means to do it, right? So if you see anything negative, that would kind of disconfirm that view of reality. So why even start this bridge, right? And you mentioned the feeling of the absence of God. There's that, that existential feeling. And then there's also the philosophical puzzle about like, if God's real, why would he not want me to know that he's real? Hmm. Right. And I feel like these are just very, very important, deep questions. And I don't claim to have easy answers. In fact, at the beginning of that section there, I talk about how there's lots and lots of material on this topic. So all I'm going to do is try to separate the clear from the unclear. That's Hmm. sort of my basic strategy. And I find it's helpful for me to just kind of like own that. Okay, here's what seems clear to me. And then I invite you as a reader to just consider for yourself what seems clear to you. That way I can just sort of be honest about how things look to me. Hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I give this what I call it the, the story theodicy, which organizes a lot of different features of the world in terms of the value that stories can have in the experience of conscious beings. So, I mean, there's a reason that we actually like movies where there's tension, there's drama, there's resolution, there's discovery. There's some kind of conscious experience there that is valuable. There's this experience of love in new ways and from new angles. There's an experience of a building of relationships, an experience even of certain kinds of relationships where you have beings who know more relating with beings who know less. And that creates certain kind of interesting dynamics, even romance. And so I sort of conceive of the whole of reality as being a kind of great story with plots inside plots, stories inside plots, stories inside stories. And that I actually would argue, I've been thinking about this again, just even recently, that I would expect if fundamental reality is perfect, is supreme in its nature, that it would be interested in great and interesting kinds of relationships with a variety of beings Mm. organized into consciousness raising or expanding uh, stories, adventures. And I don't say that this is, you know, the entire explanation for all evil or anything like this, but that it can help us to separate the clear from the unclear. So here's what's not clear to me. It's not clear to me that if there's something negative, that it isn't part of some greater good or that it won't be worked out in a way that Mm. makes it so that anybody who experienced that would say, you know what, this was actually worth it in the larger picture. So that's not clear. I I mean, to me, that's just, it's not clear that, that God with an infinite mind wouldn't see, wouldn't be able to work out value and wouldn't have good reasons for allowing Mm. departures from the good to turn into greater good. Um, Whereas if the previous steps of the, of the bridge go through, then from my own perspective, it seems clear that something exists and it has a foundation and and that foundation would have to have the kind of nature that's consistent with everything else that we see. Um, Mm. And so that's kind of the strategy there is to separate the clear from the unclear. It reminds me of, um, have you read uh, Tolkien's The Samarillion? I have not. Okay. 
it's 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 a labor. Uh, you have to be committed. Uh, but <laughs> he's an but, analytic uh, philosopher. He'll make it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Uh, but it, it's the mythology about how the whole universe of Lord of the Rings came into being, mm -hmm. and God creates the these angels, a host of angels, and He gives them all a certain co uh, chorus to sing, a certain mm -hmm. part in a chorus to sing, and every part of the chorus, the angelic chorus, is in harmony. And then one part of the chorus gets out of harmony, mm -hmm. right? So it steps outside of the, the whole fluid motion of this perfectly synchronized angelic harmony. And that's the devil. Mm -hmm. uh, but what God does is he takes that uh, aberration in the melody and he weaves it back into synthesized yeah. to the whole thing. Uh, so I think when we talk about evil in the way that you talk about um, in, in your chapter on morals is that there seems to be uh, something that steps outside of that, which is natural to the perfection of the foundation yes. that is nevertheless getting woven back into the foundation precisely because the foundation is perfect. Yeah. That leads me to... Um, something I want to ask you just because I think people will be interested to hear this. So when you talk about the foundation, mm -hmm. the foundation that supports the bridge, first of all, let me set it up like this. Um, you use the term blob of existence. Yeah. This is I the told blob my, right here. <laughs> yes. I told my wife, I said, whenever I read a philosopher use a term like blob of existence, I know we'll probably get along on a real okay, personal along. level. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, all right, so we've got the blob of existence, which just means everything that does exist, exists within the blob. Mm. That is all of existence. It doesn't matter. And I appreciated this too. It doesn't matter if you think we live in a hologram. Yeah. That makes no difference. It's still inside of the thing that is existence. Yeah. Um, and then you talk about how we cannot make, you talk about dependence and independence. I cannot make a white tiled floor from purple tiles. Mm -hmm. If I only have purple tiles, all I'm going to get is a white, white tile uh, floor. But the foundation has a nature that's not dependent. Right. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about how a non-dependent, maybe you can just say what you think the foundation is in mm -hmm. its nature. And then how can a non-dependent nature then, given your reasoning, lead to things within the, the, the blob that are dependent? Yeah. How could it, that are not necessary. How can it like a necessary being lead to non-necessary beings? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 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 No, that's good. Well, I, I was excited a moment ago when you were talking about the song, right? Like, mm. folds like a song. And in my dialogue book, I've got a dialogue with Philippe, another philosopher, Felipe Leon, on uh, Is God the Best Explanation? And I also develop, um, so I, I wrote that dialogue sort of just after I finished How Reason Can Lead to God. And I, and I talked about this great story in that book, but I also talked about it in terms that could be interpreted as a song. So I loved mm. how you put that, right? Because you could think of God as being like an artist, um, on every dimension, right? That mm. God sings and then there's this rippling 
out yes. from the music and there's angelic beings and then things can go wrong, but everything that goes wrong is allowed or can be worked for a greater good. So I wanted just to note that there. And then going back to um, the blob of everything. Yeah. Now, one thing that we have to get careful about is that, you know, I, I in the book, I, I, I say, well, could God have created the blob of everything? Is that possible? And the problem is, is that, well, the blob of everything includes everything, even God. So in order for mm-hmm. God to create the blob of everything, God would have to like create himself. And this would, I think, be uh, problematic because I've defined the blob of everything as just the total of all that is real. So then you pointed out this principle that, well, from dependent things, we're not going to get an independent totality because just as like these yellow things added up, will only add up to more yellow things. How can you take purely dependent things that depend on other things? Even, even if there's infinitely many, even if there's an infinite stack of dependent things, it seems like the whole stack is dependent, but if reality in total, has nothing to depend on, then that does lead to a puzzle. So my solution is that there's a foundation and the foundation is not outside of the blob of everything. It's actually um, the fundamental layer within the blob of everything. And so now in this metaphor, um, this is no longer the blob of everything. This is the blob of dependent things. Hmm. And then this is the independent foundation and the blob of dependent things depends on the independent foundation. So that helps solve the puzzle of how there can be anything. The way there can be anything is that there's some special thing that exists in a special way. It doesn't depend for its existence on other things. It provides the ultimate anchor of all other things. Then you because ask, of well, its nature. Because yeah. of its nature, yeah. And um, as, as Joe was pointing out, its nature would have, a, it would have a necessary nature. So by this, I mean, it cannot not be. That's the kind of thing it is. It's the kind of thing that cannot not be. Um, unlike these things, I would argue these, these things that are dependent, they can not be, they, they have the possibility of non-being. In mm. fact, that's all the more reason to, to wonder why are the, these things in being, if they might have not been in being, mm. so they're contingent. And so then, well, how, how does the foundation cause the contingent things, the dependent things? And here, my argument is that, well, in order for there to be these dependent contingent things there has to be a source of them and so then the foundational thing is the source by a kind of basic action of willing or causing or bringing about i leave it open actually whether it's a personal cause earlier in the book and then later i argue that it would have mental resources to produce yeah consciousness and things like that so ultimately i think there's a kind of basic causal connection between a necessary foundation and the contingent things the causal link is, I would say, non-deterministic. And, and, and what I mean by that is that um, if the foundation is necessary and the effect is not necessary, then it can't be necessary that the foundation makes that effect. So there has to be right. some kind of um, contingency or non-determinacy between the, the cause and the effect, if that makes sense. It's sort of like a free choice in a way. Yeah. You know, it's not deterministic that you go this way or that way. Right. And in a classical account, that would probably, you know, just as, as in, in Dale's uh, uh, analogy he brought up, could have even had like angelic mediation. You could imagine having some sort of freedom yeah. uh, in the develop. Of, well, I mean, at least that's one. Absolutely. Uh, yes. uh, yeah. yeah. Um, um, 
I wonder um, what you think about this because you know you know a lot of our uh, audience would be sort of readers of Thomas and such and uh, I mean I think there's a lot some of our audience would 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 uh, be familiar with kind of analytic categories. But mm-hmm. one of the things in kind of the, the Thomas tradition, and I think in the continental tradition as well, and, and really I'm asking this not because uh, I have the answer, I'm asking this whether this is a confusion in your judgment of, or a, a difference of mental content, or whether it's a difference just to philosophical grammar. Uh, okay. But in one tradition, it seems like sometimes uh, uh, you'll hear the language of totality, yeah. right? That uh, you don't want God, somehow there's a, there's a, a reticence uh, to making any move where God and anything finite can be contained in a in a in a set term, and mm-hmm. I've and I've in other words, like can a set of anything contain creation in God? Um, yeah. And I wonder, is there uh, is that a is that a sort of impossible to avoid way of putting it to you, or is it uh, or is that just a difference in philosophical grammar? So it, it could be. Um both depending on how it's interpreted. So okay. I, so I, I, I hear what you're, you're asking. So one way we could interpret this is that um, in addition to all the dependent things and in addition to the independent foundation, okay, there's this additional thing, which we'll call the set of all the things. Okay. Mm. And the set exists. It exists as an additional item, but there's famous paradoxes with the idea that there could be a set of all the things because yes. if there's a set of all the things and if the set is one of the things then that means the set includes itself as one of yes. the things right and as soon as you have self-membered sets then you get that famous paradox of the set of all uh of all the non-self-membered sets yeah and you can ask is that set self-membered or not e- either way it goes to contradiction the barber who shaves everybody that doesn't shave himself yes. shave himself exactly yes <laughs> so so there are paradoxes there. So what I would do to sort of stay clear from those things is I would make a distinction between there being uh, a thing broadly understood, an entity, a set, whatever, that includes all other things, okay? Ver- on the one hand, I'm not going to say that, versus um, that we can just refer plurally, um, we can just refer by a plural term to just whatever there is. Um, so if I say mm. that whatever there is, is either God or dependent on God. I don't think I've said anything that I should be ashamed of, right? Like the, anything right. that's yeah, false yeah. or problematic. Um, yeah. I mean, there are some technical distinctions even there and debates that philosophers will have about plural reference, but um, but, I, but I would make the case that there's actually not a problem with just referring to everything. Yeah, um, and, As long and as fact- we don't think of it as a set. Yeah, I think even in the classical tradition, of course, you would have to, you do have terms like being or the transcendental properties that I don't want to say straddle God in creation, but at some point there's handles that sort of, handles, that, yeah. sort of that sort of uh, transcend the created order, uh, you know, even if they're sort of negated, you know, God is love, but not in this way or however. Yes. Uh, like and so like, that. but there's some, there's some, nevertheless, some connection between, well, and in fact, that's just what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, I if wonder I could if add one we... more thing. On this. So the way that I, I've been thinking about, it, especially recently, is that if this is, if God is the ultimate foundation, the independent, then everything else, including even our concept of the totality, depends ultimately on that foundation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Mm. So it's not that the totality exists sort of in its own right. It's that it, the totality itself depends um, on yes, that Yes, yes. The capturing of it in a straddled concept, which is distinct from the being of the thing as such. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a helpful distinction. Uh, go ahead, Dale. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I'm uh, to sort of, unless you have something that's relevant to that last thing, did you, did, were you going to follow that up, Joe? No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Nope. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Joe, Joe and I uh, talk too much. Trip over each other. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about reason for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, so right now in our sort of circles, Joe and I's circles, I don't know if you're even aware of this debate. You might not be. So I won't burden your conscience, brother. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a uh, there's sort of a debate that's happening with recovering um, the Thomistic tradition, mm -hmm. classical metaphysics, when we talk about God, and then a sort of uh, they're in they're they're at war with the sort of uh, modern apologetic methodology known as presuppositionalism are mm -hmm. you familiar with that term okay yeah okay uh reason is actually being debated mm -hmm. and you make you make a you you have a whole chapter on accounting for reason why we can use reason in our discourse when we talk about god why it's a necessary tool to mm -hmm. understanding god as he is from observation and deduction um Lewis, C.S. Lewis, uh, Joe already mentioned this book, uh, Miracles and Miracles, he sort of starts to gesture at an explanation of reason as being influenced by supernature. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the, the, the foundational mind, as you talk about in the book, yeah. that is whenever our whenever conscious beings exercise reason, they are drawing from the power of the foundation in order to do that act of reason mm -hmm. in a unique and special way. And so in that way, you can almost think of reason as uh, being influenced by supernature. Mm -hmm. So uh, number one, I'm interested what you think about that. Yeah. Uh, and well, first, I think what I'm interested in is how can we be sure that reason is um, a reliable tool in the pursuit of the knowledge of God, given the effects of sin? Yeah. And two, is it plausible to understand reason as sort of tapping into the divine essence or the divine nature or the perfect nature of the foundation? of yeah. all of of all of the things yeah this is a wonderful question because you're pointing again to one of those sort of initial barriers to even enter the bridge and the way that i've heard it um well it's interesting because i've heard skepticism about reason from both atheists as well as from mm. christians mm. so from atheists part of the worry is you might be spinning webs of reason without tethering them to concrete scientific observations so there's that worry and then from the Christian side, what I hear is what you're pointing to is that um, we have a fallen nature. And so human reasoning is um, liable to error. And so if you rely on human reasoning to try to figure out the nature of things, then you're liable to being led astray. And sometimes this is contrasted with 
like being led by God's spirit or being led right. by God or God's words. So there's a kind of contrast between human yes. reason and then God's voice. And so, well, Dale, you were pointing to the very thing that I, I want to say here, um, which is that in my view, the very faculty of reasoning, simpliciter, okay, is not actually a distinctively human faculty. Humans have that faculty, but I think of it as um, a, a faculty that belongs to all, uh, well, first of all, belongs to God, okay, God has that faculty, and belongs to angels, uh, belongs to humans, um, and that there's a faculty here that we have in common. So, it's, it's uh, you might call it a, a spiritual faculty. So that's the first thing, the, the kind of power it is, mm. isn't really tied to human nature. Um, in right. my view, it's, it's a special thing that we actually have in common with angelic beings and God is this power to reason. Um, and then second, my argument in the book, and I'm actually kind of rethinking how I, my understanding of some of the, some of these things exactly, but my argument in the book was that when we are actually seeing these principles of reason that are true, the, the truth of two plus two equals four, or the truth of nothing can be both square and not square at the same time, anywhere in all of reality, those truths actually correspond to a kind of abstract reality that's ultimately anchored in God's nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I still think something along those lines that ultimately to even see necessary truths is to see something that's anchored in God so that anybody who's reasoning rightly is in an interesting way coming into contact with aspects that are grounded in God or in God. Hmm. Um, So you can actually have a kind of connection with God, even if you don't realize that it's God, um, God is sort of part of participating in your very ability to see anything. Right? Because a, it's almost like we divide the voices of God. We say, oh, well, the only way God can talk to you is through God's spirit. It's like, yes. well, what if one of the ways God talks to you is through uh, reasoning? Like that's one yeah. of the yeah. This methods. is um, uh, Henri de Lubac in his book, The Discovery of God, makes a very, very similar point because he's what the, there's a whole school of sort of transcendental Thomists, I think they call them in the 20th century. And their sort of whole argument is that the 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 mind of man they're kind of interpreting this statement of thomas that god is implicitly known in all knowledge and implicitly desired in all desires yeah and they're looking at man the famous quote they have is a abyss calls to abyss the neg there's an infinite negative abyss in man in terms of his mind and will to desire and to know that is fitted for a positive abyss in god uh, 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 that is the ultimate object of knowledge and desire and sort of what they see is every bit of knowledge in a sense, man by very nature in every bit of desiring the good and in every bit of knowing the true is sort of approximating and, but, but what we can see in ourselves is this dynamic where we latch onto a truth, just like you, you finish this book, you're satisfied, but then it just becomes the stepping stone to more thoughts. Yeah, and yes. then when you get those thoughts, it's a stepping stone to more thoughts. Is there For a sure. kind of end almost? Is there an ultimate hot take as it were? Uh, <laughs> the hot take to end all hot takes. Yeah. And, and in, in a sense, what they say is that both in terms of desire and in knowledge, uh, God is kind of that united end for the whole person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a, uh, uh, no, and I think it's very powerful. I think it's a very powerful argument. And I think jo- yeah. Josh makes that point in the book. Yes. Uh, which yeah. sounded very Aristotelian because, you know, the first yes. sentence in the ethics is, 
every thought inquiry uh i can never get the third thing every thought inquiry and something else is aimed at some good mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and josh actually picks up on that in the book and i was reminded of that because he's saying that your desire for these things is pointing to uh the foundation in some way which was what really well, yeah and this might be a way of kind of um building a bridge with uh, with the presuppositionalists that you mentioned right because mm. Uh, one of the values that presuppositionalists would have would be that God is playing a role in the formation of our basic mm, items yes. of knowledge, right? Yes. And so, you know, if we contrast that with like human reasoning, you're relying on your own human reasoning, but if instead actually, no, you are actually relying on this kind of divine reasoning or this mm. divine power, yeah, that you actually can't even use it apart from God being yes. connected in that process. Yes. Then there's actually maybe a way of, giving the presuppositionalists, you know, what they, what they want, you know, right. it's, it's kind yeah. of a translation. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Um, in, mm. you know, keeping in that direction, uh, uh, one, one of the things I'd love for you to talk about maybe for a brief minute, um, and maybe this relates to your own story. I wonder, uh, if we're allowed to ask this, I wonder, did, did was in your own conversion experience, did, did, did the philosophical journey play a role on, on this, on this front? Uh, and, and one of the things I'd love to hear you talk about, because right now, you know, in my own graduate school experience and in a lot of my friends' experience who are atheists, the role that neuroscience plays is just very large mm. in the kind of just the imagination of how reality works. Once I'm staring at a brain and I can do this and they have feelings, well, now we've reduced the mind to the brain. Uh, and, and you get the kind of visceral reading and maybe philosophical distinctions seem like too fancy, yeah, you know, what's really the, going right. on here. And I, and, I, and I wonder if you could talk about how do you, when you, when you kind of feel in your gut that, that protest, uh, was was that part of your own kind of philosophical or your own religious journey to kind of think through those things? And how, when you hear mm -hmm. somebody that brings that kind of neuroscience angle, what's your sort of immediate go-to to kind of help them work through that? That's interesting. Well, let me just start with the neuroscience. So I've been immersing myself um, lately in the science of consciousness, working on this book. And it's so fascinating to me because there's so many studies in neuroscience about the power of consciousness to affect parts of our brain. Like you can, uh, there's a neoplasticity of the brain through directing your attention in certain ways, um, through mindfulness. And then there's also interesting studies about your ability to affect remote systems through consciousness, through directing your thoughts. Mm. And, um, there's interesting theories about how this works in terms of generating information mm. in the quantum field. Um, and, and there's even studies, I was, I was reading something yesterday about how there are certain conditions where you actually diminish the brain activity and the richness of the conscious life increases, doesn't go down, but increases, mm. which you wouldn't really expect that if you're just analyzing huh. all of consciousness in terms of brain activity. I actually think there's a kind of a paradigm problem so that we, we're, we're sort of accustomed to thinking of sort of mindless bits of matter generating more complex bits of matter and then eventually, once you get the certain complexity, consciousness comes out in some mysterious way. But I'm convinced that that is actually just a completely upside down worldview. Um, and the ramifications of flipping it around are kind of sprinkling into lots of different fields in science and also in parts of philosophy that I've been reading and contributing to myself. 
where actually it's the consciousness that's primary and everything else is built out of fundamental mental elements, including even geometric structures, uh, mm-hmm. such as brains and, and, um, and things like that. So that's just a beginning taste of that. As far as that kind of knee jerk response, yeah, I think the problem and I've been thinking about this a lot is that there's a certain kind of um, authority that a narrative can carry. So yeah. if, if there's a narrative about what science says, and then I come along and say something different that goes against that narrative, that's already going to raise those red flags. It's already going to raise suspicion. And I've actually found it very difficult because even if I start citing the latest science, uh, then the worry is that, oh, well, I'm cherry picking to create this other alternative idea that's like fringe and, and weird because the mainstream narrative feels like it's it's just so mainstream, right? And I've been trying to make the argument that actually the mainstream science doesn't actually fit um, certain narratives about what what's being projected on to science. The only way to, to figure that out is actually to look into the science to, to study it for yourself, you know? Um, so actually I, I'm processing that because I'm not sure like on a social level, what actually is always the best thing, um, what somebody really needs. For me, I can just say now going back to my own times of doubt um, back when I was in late high school and kind of how I worked through that. Um, for me, it wasn't so much that I latched on to a certain scientific narrative. It was more that I began to have questions that my inherited worldview just didn't seem to have the resources for answering. Yeah. And then when I began to study and read what scientists were saying, it seemed like, oh, these are truth seekers. These, these people are trying to find out the best description of reality, and they're not making reference to God. Um, and so, I mean, you know, maybe that is now, you know, an appeal to certain kind of authority, right? Um, and so then that made me really wonder, oh, okay, well, then what are the good reasons? Are there any good reasons? And so that that kind of led me into the place of, of searching and wanting to sort of see things. But the only thing that helped me was to take a look for myself, like actually read the scientific articles. And I just have to say that, that, that like the more that I've studied the different areas, the more that I find that there's so many, many different clues at all points to the transcendent nature of our existence. And when I say transcendent, I don't mean transcending reason, right? But just transcending geometric shapes, okay? Like that there's actually consciousness and it affects the world. Yeah. Um, Do you, you, know, is that, the... are you hinting toward any, maybe this is a, this is a naughty word, uh, so I suppose, but like, does this hint toward any kind of version of the idealist tradition in your judgment? It, is, it, or your it does certainly point to that. I mean, let me just say when I was in graduate school and I first heard of idealism, I thought it was strange, uh, weird, um, unnecessary, you know, and, and so um, I rejected it. But over the last 10 years, I would say, five years, maybe even the last year, increasingly, (laughs) uh, I'd have to say uh, everything sort of shifted so that what I even thought of as idealism wasn't even really what I would say idealism actually is. Fascinating. So everything's kind of flipped around and now it's just, it's like the duck rabbit, like everything shifts like, oh, I see something very different now. So I think it would be safe to say, uh, I hesitate to use the word idealism just because of its associations, but probably there's no other term that 
um, that would best, I mean, basically mind, I, I would think is, is fundamental for describing yeah. everything else. And that's where Great. I arrived at. You know, it's interesting because I think what your sort of project presupposes um, is a mind that's open, is a mind that's ready to go after truth. That's mm -hmm. what I appreciate about the book. You're looking for truth seekers. Uh, there are people that have a priori written off a bunch of different theories about how we explain everything. And most people, if we're honest with ourselves, just really don't care. Mm -hmm. Most people don't care. Most people are just happy to get their Starbucks and go to the movies and look at Facebook and Twitter and argue and post pictures on Instagram. And we live at least in the advanced modern West. So what I appreciate about the book is that you really are like extending an arm out to a rising class of people, young people that are really sort of like going, why am I here? We've got yeah. suicide that is skyrocketing, depression, anxiety, hopelessness. We've got, the, it, it's a phenomenon. Uh, it really is something that we all need to be paying attention to. And your book, I think, is a resource that I would be, feel comfortable mm -hmm. handing out as, in mm -hmm. terms of like a package of information to say this can help you get somewhere mm -hmm. in your quest for understanding why you're here. Mm. Um, if those people exist. Uh, but I guess what I want to say is <clears throat> for the skeptic who doesn't even think that these questions are uh, relevant to what they believe on the ground. Mm -hmm. So for the engineer that's making 250K a year, uh, who drives a nice car, lives in a nice ha house, has a good wife, has a couple kids, life seems relatively peaceful. What's the need for them to understand this thing? Like yeah. what, what, how could we prompt those people to get a thirst and a hunger for understanding these big questions about why things just are here? Uh, how do we even pull them into the orbit of the conversation that you want people to be a part of? Mm -hmm. I guess that's really, yeah. if I'm trying to take your book and bring it all the way down to the ground, which is I know what you're trying to do in the book, then how do we grab skeptics and how do we rope them in and go <laughs> think about these things because yeah. they're important? So you might have a better answer than, than me. I almost don't want to rope people in. Maybe, mm. maybe that's not my, my skill set really, but um, <laughs> I'll just yeah. be very honest. So I see so many people who are already very curious and they have mm. this kind of existential angst. I get emails all the time from people who have these questions and, and um, people or people who are feel like they have answers, but the answers are ultimately hopeless. Um, and they're open to ex giving it another shot, having another look, expanding their thinking. But as far as somebody who maybe not doesn't quite sort of feel that question, it might be that. So I've got a couple couple thoughts here at once. Um, the first thought is I've been thinking about truths as being like a set of keys so that these keys are like powers so they can unlock doors. They can get you somewhere, but like not everybody needs every key at the same time. And sometimes, 
you know, Jesus talked about like these things are, you're not ready for these things. Or like some, some truths it's like, you're ready for these. Maybe you're not ready for these others. Um, that's kind of like one thought. And then another thought on the other side of that is I think everybody does have these questions. Like everybody yeah. does, like it shows up in different ways, but like everybody thinks about like, yeah, why am I here? Like, like who really am I? Like, what is this place? You know, I mean, you don't right. have to be always thinking philosophically to just kind of wonder that. Um, why, like, does my work really matter in the end if I'm working so hard? And I think sometimes maybe if people feel like they don't have good answers to that or deeply satisfying answers, then they'll kind of try to fill those questions with other things, maybe distractions. Yeah. Um, people really want the... They, they want answers that can satisfy, but they want those answers to be actually true. So yeah. I think that's the thing that people are really hungry yeah. for that. Maybe, yeah. a, maybe a way of uh, drawing us to a close is to, to ask, um, you know, reason, your book is called How Reason Can Lead Us to God. Uh, 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 maybe a final question is, can reason lead us to Christ? Uh, is there another, is there another book to be written by you or somebody else that is taking that same sort of, sort of powerful tool, uh, and then looking at scripture and the claims of Christ and then moving mm. sort of further on the journey toward God in Christ? What is your, where are you at on that question? Yeah. The way that I've kind of thought about it is, um, if you're familiar with Richard Swinburne's work on this connection, mm. um, he talks about reasons that, God would have to become incarnate, to identify with our sufferings and the human condition, to demonstrate love for us in a unique and special way, to enter human history. Um, and he, he motivates then an argument for the sort of central message of God's redemption and God's love and forgiveness. Um, this image of sins being put on a scapegoat it's like everybody has yeah. this feeling of shame at times. And it's like, well, what do you do with that? You know, I mean, at some point you need to know that God himself, the God of the universe says, I forgive you. Look, look, I'm putting the sins on myself. Amen. Like, let me demonstrate yep. to you, like how much I love you and forgive you. So Swinburne makes the argument that through reason, you can actually anticipate that if fundamental reality has this supreme mind, the supreme nature, then it would be interested in, in this kind of story. Yeah. In my classes, um, I have a, a class where it's a smaller class and we talk about these topics. And one of the things I'll do sometimes is I'll ask the students to describe their favorite movie. Um, and, and then I'll ask them, okay, what are the attributes of a great movie? And I'll just put these attributes on, on the board. Okay, um, there was some kind of tension in the movie. There was some kind of hero. There was um, an experience of maybe something was discovered there's romance, there's love, there's, right? And then, okay, what's the greatest kind of love that you can think of? And, and you describe these things. It's like, oh, you actually discover that in the heart of human history, you have pointers to the fingerprint of, of God entering history and displaying love and forgiveness yes. in the way that would kind of make sense of, you know, this great story, right? Yes. And it's not that this is it, you know, that, that that's, that's all that the story you know, there are, aren't other episodes that are related to it, but just that you can actually use reason to increase what they say is the prior probability, the pri probability mm -hmm. prior to the historical evidence yeah. of this message. And I think that actually can make a big difference. It can even explain why 
somebody who looks at some evidence will say, well, I don't believe that that is true. And somebody else looks at the same evidence and they think, oh, I think that this is true. Mm. And I don't think it's just like, well, one person's being stubborn or anything like that. Mm. I think that people have different prior probabilities that they're using to assess the evidence. So this is why, I mean, I could actually get very passionate about this because I, I think the use of reason to help you to uncover prior probabilities um, is so important, like so valuable yes, absolutely. and it's so um, overlooked. Like I, people, yeah. people don't realize yeah. um, the power of reason to help with that. Hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is, uh, it was the synthesis of all of these stories of heroes and sort of charting out a pattern of how they all correlate with one another all of these narratives from collected around the world uh, from all times of history sort of communicate this one thing. And why do we see that pattern with us as humans, whatever we are? This particular species of animals of humans have invented this pattern of story to sort of give down to all of our progeny forever. That's a phenomenon that, you know, sort of elicits your attention that you should investigate. So, brother, uh, your book was great. I appreciate you. you. Keep it up. Um, I have no closing thoughts, but I I do want to sort of give you the last word. So you've already mentioned the the next project that you're working on. If you want to reemphasize that and tell us about any of the other outlets that we can find you on or that we can investigate uh, whatever you're doing, please, this is the opportunity to let us all know where we can get more of uh, Joshua. Uh, so I'm not Rasmussen. gonna say your last name. Rasmussen. <laughs> Rasmussen, <laughs> yeah, Rasmussen yes. <laughs> I always tell my students, just call me Josh because the last name is, uh, takes too much time to yeah. Yeah. too many right, syllables. Right. Yeah. No, you guys, this has been just wonderful. I appreciate this time with you guys. Appreciate your, your work and, um, you know, before the show, you were saying to me that you have a, a cool audience and, and that we're not all, you know, analytic philosophers. And uh, yet, as we entered the conversation, I mean, you both very much impressed me with the, the fine-tuned insights that you mm. have um, in the area of work that, that I'm passionate about. So I really mm. appreciate that. Mm. And I'm sure it serves your audience very well. Mm. As far yeah. as my work, um, you can get free resources on my website joshualrasmussen.com. There's just free articles there. Um, then I also have this worldview-design.com. It's a, it's a training center where yes. um, this is a paid subscription, but it allows people to connect closer to Christian thinkers and idea leaders who are trying to build out their worldview. And I've been um, answering questions in there. I do a weekly uh, answer to a question um, because I've been getting too many questions to answer all of them. So I'm just going to do one per week and post them in there. And then, yeah, so the work I'm working on now is this book on, uh, it's called, Who Are You Really? It's about the nature of persons, the nature and the origin of persons. So that should hopefully come out possibly this next summer. I told my publisher, I don't want to rush it. Um, I gave him a draft and I said, but let's, you know, let's take some time to, get some good reviewers and, and make sure mm. that we develop this well. So mm. that's where I'm at. Great. Very good. Anything else, uh, Jeff? Nope. That's great. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for uh, tuning in. Uh, as always, you can head, head over to davenantinstitute.org 
and uh, check out what we're doing there. You can go to the Davenant Institute uh, YouTube page and find all of our previous episodes, as well as um, iTunes and any other podcast catcher that you have. We've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Uh, um, Pilgrim Faith Podcast is the Facebook group. You can join the conversation and interact with whatever we talk about. So, uh, Joe, I love your brother. Love you too, man. And Josh, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. All right.